0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Pray with me. Lord Christ, you are the light of the world. Inspire hope. In us, awaken expectation as we await your coming. Amen. Seated. Today marks the beginning of the season of Advent, where liturgical churchgoers everywhere inhabit a stealthy double life. You know what I'm talking about. Out there in the world, we are going to holiday parties, buying gifts, stringing lights. Who's got their tree already? Be honest. I got mine yesterday. (laughs) The world out there spends this month in the full hustle and bustle of Christmas. Santa himself, I'm told, has already taken up residence at the mall. The world outside is feverish with all the frenzy of a deeply commercialized holiday. Inside these walls, though, and inside the walls of liturgical churches around the world, things have a different feel. You may have noticed the scriptures we read today were not exactly Christmassy in the conventional sense. No, instead, what we were given is some foreboding imagery about Jesus returning on the clouds and the sun going dark and people being swept away. Quite a contrast. I mean, in my experience, December serves as a ramp up to Christmas. I always thought it was about looking forward to Jesus the baby, not Jesus the judge. Well, so what exactly is this season for? Which arrival or advent of Christ are we directing our attention to? Which are we waiting for? Well, those who have lived this, these Anglican rhythms much longer than me know that the answer is both. We do reflect in advent on the journey toward Jesus' incarnation, his first arrival when he took on flesh as a baby in Bethlehem. And we reflect on those events with an eye on the second arrival, when he will come again as victorious king to judge the world and set everything aright. In Advent, we find ourselves on a parallel track of waiting, if you will, alongside the Old Testament prophets and saints who longed for their coming Messiah. And this makes Advent resonate differently with me. This season is not, in fact, simply about reenacting or imagining what it would have been like as God's people to be walking in darkness, awaiting rescue. You know, as if that's hypothetical. That actually hits home for me, for us, I think, right now. We are no strangers to darkness ourselves. We are a people awaiting rescue. We are offered the chance to step into Advent fully, for we too long for light to break into our darkness. And this is the gift of the church calendar. It's true that our entire Christian life is lived in anticipation for Jesus's future victorious arrival. We ought never to lose sight of it, but Advent provides a unique space to explore it, to steep in it, to bring it acutely into our line of vision. And the weather where we live accompanies us on this journey, doesn't it? As the darkness and cold have come on so abruptly this month, When many of us leave our places of work in the afternoons, it is already dark. The nights are becoming cold and long, dovetailing that sense of foreboding that we felt from our lectionary readings. Advent invites us to take an honest look at the darkness, the darkness in the world and the darkness in our own hearts. And as we feel its effects, the gloom of the seemingly endless night around us, we turn our gaze toward Jesus's return toward the morning that will one day finally come. The words of Jesus in our gospel reading from Matthew 24 are, in terms of biblical interpretation, some of the more difficult things that Jesus said. If you would uh, turn there with me in your bulletin, it's on page seven, I believe. We read that Jesus said, Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And continuing on jesus emphasizes that no one will know when this ha- will happen no one will know when he returns and it is emphatic that his followers be ready like i said this passage in the chapter of matthew 24 as a whole really has proven to be a difficult one to interpret there is speculation and disagreement from scholars about pretty much every element in this passage what is actually going to happen when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, who it's going to happen to. There is little to no consensus among among biblical scholars when it comes to these things. And that is in part because of the apocalyptic language Jesus is using. While it's jarring to our modern Western ears, it was actually a common way of communicating in that time. We see glimpses of this throughout the Old Testament in this image heavy poetic form of communication. some of the things that we may be tempted to take very literally and therefore horrifically are actually on par for the genre. So for example, the stars falling from the sky, that little excerpt is quoting from Isaiah chapter 13, which is a poetic prophecy about the fall of the nation of Babylon, which had already happened by this point. So did the stars actually fall? Did the sun fade to black? Or is that imagery communicating the reality that life as everyone knew it was collapsing and that nothing would ever be the same. Despite the interpretive complexities, the message that does ring out clearly from this passage is that Jesus will one day come in power at a time no one expects, and life as we know it will never be the same. All of the imagery Jesus uses here is to communicate suddenness, shocking unexpectedness, the great flood in the days of Noah, Two examples of individuals, male and female, at a normal day's work being suddenly swept away. Finally, a thief who breaks into a home while the owner is unaware. All sudden events, catching those involved entirely off guard. And this is part of a greater picture being painted, a thread woven throughout the scriptures of the future day of the Lord. Father Kevin touched on this last week, the great and terrible day when Jesus returns as king and the nations will stand before him to be judged. A day of reckoning for the world. And what's more, no one knows when this day will come, not even Jesus himself, only the Father. Yet it will be visible to everyone, Jesus says, unmistakable. Everyone will see it, but no one will see it coming. And if you feel a little unsettled by this picture being painted, you aren't alone. Again, this is not the stuff of peace and joy and hope that we need right now. Or is it? As much as part of me resists this thought of of Christ coming as judge to stamp out darkness, I've become convinced that this vision of Christ the judge is the hope that we need this season. In fact, it's our only hope. But why? Why? Why Christ as judge? Why not Christ as meek and mild, gentle and kind? How we like him. This is a rub many of us feel. In fact, some prefer not to believe in Christ as judge at all. There are preachers and churches who avoid passages like these altogether because the idea of judgment doesn't feel compatible with a loving God. And if I'm honest, I find myself feeling that same tension at times, wanting to avoid this darker side of. We might think that we want a world without the wrath of God, but as Advent leads us to take an honest inventory of the darkness around us, we begin to realize that a God who does not finally come in judgment is actually no loving God at all. Because what is it to love someone or something if not to contend fiercely against anything that would come against them to cause them harm? We understand this instinctively. Those of us who are parents who know that there's nothing we wouldn't do to protect our children from harm, whether it comes from outside them like a bully at school or from inside like an illness or a mental affliction, we will act against that which threatens the lives of our precious ones, won't we? However calm and gentle we may think our demeanors, the term mama bear exists for a reason. Likewise, for those of us who have experienced intimately what a disease like cancer does to a person, there are not adequate words for the wrath we feel toward that which seeks to destroy the lives of those we love. And that, I believe, is a characteristic of being made in the image of God. So the coming judgment of the world is a dreadful thought, yet it is the thing on which our hope rides because it means that God cares. It means he sees, he cares about the harm that we have done to others, to his creation, and he cares about the harm that has been done to us, the harm that's been done to you. If Christ does not come as judge, those who have suffered in this life will have suffered in vain. If God is unbothered by the atrocities of war, If there is no retribution for the horrors of human trafficking and sexual abuse and missiles being fired at maternity wards in Ukraine, if God is not enraged when third graders are shot to death at their elementary school, a world without consequences is nothing less than hell. We need Christ to come as judge. Almighty God sees the atrocities humanity has committed. He sees the devastation we have wreaked on his creation, and he cares. He promises to do away with it, with sin and death once for all, to stamp them out so utterly from this world that they cannot hurt his beloved ones any longer. Therein lies our hope. Christ must come as judge. But this, of course, creates a problem for us. Pastor Tim Mackey puts it helpfully. He says, if there is no final reckoning coming, there is no meaning or no hope for the world. But if there is a final reckoning coming, there's no hope for me. We must grapple right with the reality that Christ's judgment of the world, of the pervasive darkness that so harms and twists and kills, That also means his judgment of us, that our works of darkness, of the darkness that exists in our very hearts, is brought to account as well. How we live matters, the things that we've done and left undone, we will all give an account of our lives before Jesus Christ, the Judge. But we need not be filled with fear. Because though God's wrath burns white-hot against sin and death and all that would harm his good creation, and we ourselves are accomplices in those things, we hold out hope in the promise that we, though undeserving, will be received by our judge with mercy. And this is where the parallel tracks of Advent touch each other. We have hope for the second arrival of Christ because of his first because Jesus took on human flesh, entered our very existence as broken, hell-bound humans, and showed light in our darkness. He loved us even unto death, and in doing so, swallowed up sin and death's very power into himself, taking the judgment due to us, that we might receive his light, that we might walk in his light. Everything hinges on Jesus returning as judge And though it will be indeed a great and terrible day, it is our final hope. A judge that puts the end to the darkness around us and the darkness within us. Sin and death will be done away with forever. And we, God's people who he dearly loves, will be rescued from its clutches. The promise of this day ought not to inspire fear, but longing like yearning for the morning after a long, cold night. So given this promise of Christ's arrival, his advent, how ought we live? What should be our posture as we await him in all of our lives, but especially in Advent? Well, Jesus follows this discourse in our Matthew passage with a series of parables, including the one we read last Sunday, all that paint this picture of what it means to be ready for his return and how we ought to live in the now. And the imagery that has been resonating with me most here is that of a watchman. In the passage we read today, Jesus paints a picture for us of being alert, awake, as one who keeps watch through long hours, ready to respond to the unexpected. And in the next chapter of Matthew, we hear a parable of 10 young women awaiting the arrival of a bridegroom to his wedding. Five of them whose wisdom led them to, to bring oil to supply their lamps in case it was a long night. And it turned out to be a long night. So when the bridegroom arrived, he found them still waiting with lanterns lit and they are welcomed in. And these stories reveal a posture of readiness. I believe our advent posture ought to look like this as a community keeping watch for our Lord. Because it does no good to pretend we are not living in darkness. We surely are. Every news headline, the Twitter feeds, the economic injustice and disparity we see among the neighborhoods in our city, sickness and suffering in all its forms. An honest look at the state of the world tells tells us that things are not as they should be. And an honest look at the state of my own heart tells me things are not as they should be it is dreadfully dark outside and what's more we don't have the power to change it so we look to the one who does we hold out hope with the apostle paul in our reading from romans that the night is almost gone and the day is near that christ will come again bringing the dawn of the morning with him Unless we think this is a passive waiting, however, sitting and yawning and being unbothered by the darkness, Paul's words instruct us how we might be faithful in the work of waiting. He writes, besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light Let us live honorably as in the day. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To stand as those who watch, then, is to put on Christ. He is present with us as our light. The only reason we can see anything at all. We cannot change the fact that it is night, that it is dark around us. But we are called to live not as if we belong in the darkness. No, we cast those works aside. Instead, we live like people who are made for the day, because we are. Keeping watch means living as people of the day, our very lives bearing witness that the darkness is not all there is. The light burning in our lanterns, the presence of Christ sustains us, enables us to see the path ahead for as long as this night might last. This posture of keeping watch holds hope prominently in our view this Advent. Hope that waiting is not in vain. That as I read tragedy after tragedy in the headlines, I hope and pray that morning will come. That as our loved ones suffer from disease, as we grieve those who have departed this life, we are reminded that the light of day will dawn. That as I continually frustrate myself with my sin, making the same bad decisions over and over, being unable to control my temper, I have faith, I I am able to trust that I know that this will not be forever. But morning is coming. So as we enter this Advent season, which culminates on Christmas when we celebrate the birth of our Savior, the judge of the cosmos who became an infant. We don't have to pretend or imagine what it would have been like to be in the darkness awaiting rescue. The power of sin and death has been conquered already. The victory has been won. And we long for the day that its effects are stamped out forever. Until then, we keep watch with lanterns lit, choosing to live now as people of the light. As we close, I'm reminded of the psalmist who penned these words in Psalm 130, and I invite you to um, close your eyes and pray them with me as we close. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait the morning. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.